You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Genesis chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there is yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt." Hurry, go up and tell my father, to my father, and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. Verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt. They came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. And he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. When they told them all the words of Joseph, uh, which he had said to them, And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry them, and the spirit of their father was revived. And Israel said, Israel, whose name was Jacob, Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. That's our text. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. It's power, it's potency, it's ability to change us, even when the text that we read sometimes doesn't make a lot of sense, when there's things in in here that... um, in this story that it could mean a million different things, you have a way of synchronizing it and making it make sense to our hearts, and I pray that you do that tonight. I need your help. I ask that you would anoint me, God. I, 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 wanna, I, I want to clearly portray your message, the thing that you want to say to this church as we've been in this small series on suffering. I pray this church would suffer well, God. I pray that no matter what comes our way, that we would know how to suffer, not just grin and bear it and not, not just blow it off like it's no big deal, but go through it rejoicing in Christ, trusting in you, God. Give us that testimony in our city, in our world, at this church, when things get difficult, we cling to Christ Jesus. Please, God. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of tonight's message is The Purpose of of pain. And when I say that, I don't want to kind of get your hopes up. I don't want to be uh, misleading. Um, I, I don't know the purpose of pain. I, I, it makes a great title. When I wrote it down, I'm like, whoo, this is a really good title. I, I can tell you Joseph's purpose of pain, but I can't tell you your purpose of pain. And that's what I hope to do tonight. I want to I look at Joseph's life as it ends here, well, as it almost comes to a close here um, in Genesis chapter 45. As the resolve of his life actually happens, 
I want to show you his life and his resolve and the purpose of his pain, but the purpose of your pain might be a bit difficult. I know that whenever I go through pain or when the people around me go through pain, it's really hard to find the thing. What is God doing? And I've tried to, I must admit, I've tried to do it in my own life. I've tried to do it for you guys as well when I counsel or I'm praying. I know with the other pastors and leaders here when they do that, we want to find the purpose in your pain. We want to help you. But sometimes that's hard. I was sitting with a friend recently, a really, really close friend of mine who um, has gone through a lot of suffering lately. And um, we're sitting down, we're rejoicing, we're mourning together, we're just talking about life and catching up. And um, he's been through just a lot of pain. And he's like, Dave, it's like this. Why pain? What is the purpose for pain? Why does pain happen in our lives? He goes, I've narrowed it down to three things. And I don't know which one to peg it on. One of three things is happening when we go through suffering. Either it's random, it's completely random. You and I will go through suffering and we don't know where it comes from, where it's going, it just happens in our life and there's no purpose at all, at all, at all, at all. It just happens. People die, people get sick, people hurt themselves, people lose jobs, it just happens. It's random. Or it's Satan. Satan hates us. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy and he's after our destruction. So it's Satan who's doing this or it's God. God just allows it to happen, and God sees it, and he brings this stuff in our lives. I don't know what it is. It's random, it's Satan, or it's God. And he looks at me, and I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know why you're looking at me. I, have no, I don't have the answer to that. So he sat there, and I'm just, I, ha- I didn't even have words to say back. I'm like, I was trying to quote a verse. Nothing came to mind. I'm like, I don't know. Like, I wanted to say, you know, God works all things together for good. But that would have been very trite at that very moment. He was suffering, like what? And I don't want to sound like Job's friends. You know that? You know what? Job's friends, they just kind of like, well, maybe you're sinning. You need to repent, and that's why God's kind of kill, trying to kill you right now. Like, you don't want to be that guy ever in suffering. If someone says you're suffering, don't go, you might be in sin. What if you repented? Maybe everything would be better. Don't be that guy or that gal. I don't want to do that. So I just sat there. I don't know the answer to that question. So so I know the title of this sermon might be a bit misleading because it's the purpose of pain, but I'm not trying to talk about your purpose or my purpose. I'm just talking about Joseph's. But I do believe as we look at Joseph's purpose for pain, maybe, maybe it'll help us find some direction on this difficult subject of pain in our own lives. And this is why I can say that as I've been, um, we've been studying the book of Genesis, this guy named John Walton has been very helpful to me in his commentary on Genesis. And he says this as he is winding down his commentary. He says this about the life of Joseph. He says, I cannot pretend to offer any language that resolves all the problems of reconciling God's sovereignty with the presence of evil in the world. It should be noted, however, that the Bible's own attempt to reconcile these issues is not represented by detailed and technological philosophical treatises. Instead, the important theology is clarified by illustration because, as we all know, Where language may fail, illustration can succeed. The story of Joseph, therefore, can stand as a living treatise on the theology of God's sovereignty. That is genius. See, our our systems, our framework always breaks down. You try to explain something. Well, uh, let, let me explain the sovereignty of God. You do that, and then you plug in something. You plug in something wicked and horrific, like, how is God's sovereignty there? And you're like, oh, I don't know. It kind of breaks down. Well, then you go, well, God has, well, men can do what they want to do. They have free will. Okay, then you, you plug in, well, how does God override all that? Oh, I don't know. It breaks down. You can, the Bible doesn't even try to reconcile the two. 
Bible gives us stories like this, illustrations like Joseph, and says, look at Joseph's life, and in the story, it goes where language cannot, and we can find some peace. So that's what I want to do today. I want to wrestle through this together, this, this, this resolve of Joseph's story, and find resolve for our own story. And so this is how we'll attempt to go through this text tonight, facing pain's reality, explaining pain's presence, and resolving pain's hurt. How did Joseph face pain's reality? How did he explain pain's presence? And is there a resolve to pain's hurt? By the way, this is our last teaching on pain, so rest well tonight. First, facing pain's reality. Joseph had this uncanny ability to see God in everything. If he wasn't so noble, it would be sickening. He saw God everywhere in everything that happened to him. Through all of his suffering, through all of his pain, through all of his misery, he saw God through everything. When he was sold into slavery and was made a slave in Potiphar's house. And when Potiphar's wife tried to jump on him and like, sleep with me, and he's like, crazy woman, I'm not going to sleep with you. Like, you're going to sleep with me. And she kept, he kept, she kept on with her aggression trying to sleep with Joseph, who it says was a very handsome man. It doesn't say about that about any man in the Bible. So he was good looking. She tries to sleep with him. He says, no. And this is what he says. He goes, how can I sin against God and do this great evil? How can I sin against God? He brings God into the equation where you or I would probably use our suffering as an excuse to sin. Like, I'm suffering. Where's God at? I'm going to sin. Sometimes we use, we use our own pain in our own life, whether it be physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain, to lash out into sin. Because we're like, I didn't, I don't, I didn't want this. I just, it's just the way I cope. This is how I cope with my life. I'm in so much pain, I, I do this. Of course it's sin against God, but you know what? Where's God when it hurts? Joseph didn't do that. When he's in prison, because he said no to Potiphar's wife, he's in prison, in a pit, and he meets a, the butler and the baker. And they have these dreams, and they can't interpret them, and they're sad. And Joseph, being such a nice guy, is like, hey, guys, why are you guys so bummed this morning? You guys look so bummed. And they're like, well, we're in prison, for one, but we also had these dreams. And no one can interpret them, and this is what he says. He says, don't all interpretations belong to God? There it is again. Tell, your future, your personal destiny belongs to God. Tell me your dreams, and God will give you an answer. And then when he stands before Pharaoh, the Pharaoh and Pharaoh goes, I heard, Joseph, that you have the ability to interpret dreams. He says, no, no, no. It's not in me. God will give you a favorable answer, Pharaoh. God. Then he names his first boy Manasseh because God has made me forget all my troubles. He named his second boy Ephraim because God has made me fruitful in the land of my sufferings. God. God, 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 over and over again. He had this uncanny ability to turn everything, even his suffering, back to God. And then he's standing right before his attackers. He's standing face to face with the people who bloodied him, his brothers who threw him naked into a pit and sold him off to slavery because they hated him and their hearts were full of jealousy and bitterness. And he's standing face to face with them. If you guys read the story from 41 all the way to 45... There's a famine in the land. It's been two years. The famine hits not only Egypt, but it hits the promised land. So 
Joseph's dad, Jacob, sends the sons over to Joseph, not knowing he's sending them to Joseph, sends them to Egypt to get some grain. But Jacob only sends 10 sons. He has 12. One of them he thinks is dead, Joseph. The other son is Benjamin. The thing that Benjamin and Joseph have in common is that they are the only children from his beloved wife, Rachel, and he loves these boys. So Benjamin, he keeps close. He's like, Benjamin, I don't really trust you with these, these 10 guys. You're going to stay close. You guys go get food. So they do. They go. They come back. And if you read the story, Joseph takes one of them, and then they end up going back. So anyway, so let me fast forward a little bit. They're all there. Benjamin eventually gets back to Egypt. They're all there. We're like, we need more food. We're out of food. So Joseph feeds them and then sticks a, a, a cup in Benjamin's sack on the last day when they're about to go back home. Their sacks are full of grain and all this stuff. And when they're about to leave and go back home, Joseph takes one of his silver cups and he puts it in Benjamin, his youngest brother's bag. And he sends them all off. And when they're off in the distance, he, Joseph sends one of his servants and say, hey, Go out there. Someone stole my, it was obviously a setup. Someone stole my silver cup. So the servant runs out there, stops him. Hey, my master has been so good to you guys. He's fed you. He's given you grain. He's given you money. Why did you steal his silver cup? And they're like, we didn't steal steal anything. If we stole this cup, may we be dead. May you kill us. And the servant goes, no, no, no. Hey, don't get crazy. I don't need to kill you. The person who sold the cup will be my slave. How about that? They're like, fine. So they start the oldest. Nope. Next, next, next. They go all the way down. They, start, they finally get to Benjamin, the youngest. They open up his bag and his silver cup's in there. And they all tear their clothes. They all said no. And, and they, at that moment, they could have easily, easily said, that's wrong. No one stole it. We're, let's, we need to go back and talk to Joseph and tell him and plead our case. But they didn't. They went back guilty. And Joseph is standing before all of them. He's face-to-face with the people who sold him into slavery. Joseph has known evil. He's known suffering. Suffering and evil has been his companions for years now. He has been unreasonably hated, enslaved, falsely accused, and wrongly imprisoned. And this is what Joseph acknowledges. He acknowledges two things. When his brothers, who all sold him out, obviously they don't know it's him yet, we stand, he, he, he does two things. He, he, he acknowledges two things as his attackers are before him. He acknowledges first the reality of sin and evil. And second, he acknowledges the sovereignty of God. When he is face to face with the evil and the men that set all this evil in motion, he said this to them. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. See, verse four is a condemning clause. That's a, wherever it was, it was on the screen. That's a condemning clause. I am your brother whom you sold into Egypt. I am him, I'm Joseph, whom you sold. When we face the reality of pain, this is how we have to face pain. So we can read this story and we might get a little bit confused. You might start thinking, well, you know, like what we'll do, you could just kind of cover everything over with God. God works everything out. Now listen, sin is sin. He looks his brothers square in the eye and goes, you sold me into slavery. It's me, Joseph. And he like pulls off his head, headdress and he pulls off his fake beard and he like wipes off the mascara. He goes, it's me, come here. And they come near to him and say, it's me, Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. 
When you and I face the evil, we have to understand this, that pain is real. And we have to face it like this. We, we face it, understand that we live in a broken world full of disharmony and sin. That's the world that we live in. People sin against us, and they're guilty of that sin. And vice versa. The sin that you commit against other people, you're guilty of that. So if you've been a victim of gross injustice, I'm not saying, hey, just you know, kind of cloud that over with God's good, God's great, he'll work everything out. No, you look at that and go, that was wrong, and that person sinned against me. You have to understand the reality of sin. Now, how do we do that, though? And balance that with the sovereignty of God over all the brokenness in the world and all the sinful intentions of the heart. Well, there's a thing I taught you guys two weeks ago, and I'm going to repeat it because you guys need to know this. There are two biblical givens in Scripture. These two things are always in tension and are both compatible. They're both simultaneously true in Scripture. The first one is this. God is absolutely sovereign. God is absolutely sovereign. But his sovereignty never functions in such a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimized, or mitigated. God is completely sovereign, but his sovereign never overrides human responsibility. Not that human responsibility is curtailed at at, at any point. But the second thing that we have to keep in mind is that human beings are morally responsible creatures. Joseph's brothers are evil, and they did an evil thing. Human beings are responsible creatures. We significantly choose, rebel, obey, believe, defy, make decisions, sell brothers into slavery, and so forth. And they are rightly held accountable for such actions. But this characteristic never functions so as to make God absolutely contingent or reliant on our decisions. It wasn't like the brothers sold Joseph into slavery and God's like, darn it, how am I going to get him out? How do I do this? So hard, be God. That's not what God's doing. And they're both true. Do you see how frameworks don't work? Like, this is, this is messy. I, I, when you guys see this, you're like, oh, it's not. I can't, I can't form a really good. How do, I, how do I plug in all the injustice that's going on in, in human trafficking? Where do I plug that into? Those people that do, that, do, that are slave traders, they're responsible. Completely sinful and responsible, and they'll stand before God. But God is completely sovereign. They're both, they're, they're both working at the same time. Well, how does that work? The Bible doesn't say how it works. It says, read the story of Joseph. It says, read this story and meditate on this story. Because you see both the wickedness of his brothers, but God's sovereignty playing it all out. This tension has to remain. We can't build a clean framework with this. This this tension, though it's not easy to keep, has to remain. Joseph's brothers are guilty of sin and the evil that sent Joseph into slavery. That's what chapter 42 through 45 is all about. That cup that I was talking about in Benjamin's bag, when they uncovered that cup, it was what, 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 what what the writer's trying to do is he's trying to show us it uncovered their guilt. And that's why when Judah stood before Joseph, he said, how can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered our guilt. See, God used Joseph, this whole interplay that happened between chapter 41 and chapter 45, this whole them back and forth and Joseph locking one of them in prison and pulling one out and then feeding them and then sending them off with a cup and then bringing them back. What he's doing, he's tempering them. He's saying, what are they really made of? And when that cup was found, they realized, and they said this in Hebrew, and they didn't think Joseph could hear because they didn't think Joseph could speak Hebrew. They're like, God is getting us back for the boy. We should have never sold the boy into slavery. 
Their guilt was coming up. Their guilt was being uncovered right before them. And we know what Joseph was doing when he put that cup in Benjamin's bag. When they came back, he said this. Joseph said, I, I want Benjamin to be my slave. And they're like, no, no, kill us all. Kill us all. We'll all be your slaves. He's like, no, 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 no. Ten of you guys can go. Benjamin stays. What was Joseph doing? This is brilliant. He was doing, he was repeating the exact same thing that happened to him in Dothan. Sell out a son of Rachel into slavery and go free. Same exact scenario. Hey guys, you guys can go free. You guys can leave. Just sell Rachel's last son into slavery to be my slave and you guys can go free and make up a story to tell dad like, you know, more wild animals ate him or something. They could have done that. They could have been like, oh, really? Okay, take Benjamin, go ahead. Dad's other favorite, and we'll just peace out and go back to dad and go, dad, I don't know, another wild beast, like the same one I think maybe ate him. (laughs) They could have said that, but they didn't. You know what they said? Judah stood forward. Judah. And he said, take my life. My life for his life. And this is where we pick up in chapter 45 when Joseph said he couldn't control himself anymore. He saw that his brothers were actually changed. Like something had to happen in their own heart. They realized their own guilt. And they didn't want to give up. The, and he goes, it's, it's me, Joseph. And that's when he tears everything, he wipes everything. It's me, it's me. But then he says this, you sold me into slavery. You are guilty of that. But what he balanced that with is the sovereignty of God. See, Joseph here is not absolving the brothers of any guilt by this declaration. Their guilt is real, but he looks to a higher purpose. And he says this in verse 5. And now, do not be distressed or angry. Wow. You with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. There Joseph goes again with God. Weaving God into everything, everything that's ever happened to him. Weaving God back into it. God did this. Verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve you, for you a remnant on earth to keep you alive for many survivors. Verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Verse 9. Hurry, go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all Egypt. God, 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 God. It was not you who sent me here, but God did. It would be inappropriate to say that God caused the evil in his brother's hearts that sent him into slavery. That would be wrong. You can't say that in this text. You can't say, no, God caused you to do evil. God put that evil in your heart. That's not what Joseph says. That's, an over, that's overstating it. You can't say that God caused evil. God causes no evil. Yet it would be too large to step away from God's sovereignty and simply say that God allowed these things to happen. You can't just go, you know, God just allowed it to happen. Brothers are going to sin. God just like allowed it to happen. And he was out of, kind of out of control that day. And he couldn't really do anything about it. So it kind of slipped through his sovereignty. But he can work it all out in the end. No, no, we can't say that either. See, we have a problem here, don't we? We can't say God caused the evil in his brothers. But you can't say he, let, he just simply let it happen. We cannot be guilty of the reductionism that is so interested in protecting God from damage to his reputation that it cripples his sovereignty. We always want to protect God's reputation it's like no god doesn't like really do that he kind of allows it but like he works it all out like no no no. you you, you're trying to protect god's god's reputation but you're damaging his sovereignty he's completely sovereign over all of it so what you have to do when you face the reality of pain in your own life the injustices of this world the injustice in your own heart 
the injustice done to you, you must understand that the pain is real. Don't blow it off like, eh, no, I'm not going through pain. It's no big deal. You can acknowledge it. It's wrong. What happened to me is wrong. What, what, this world is wrong, but God is sovereign. Now, how does that work in the middle of our pain? Point two, explaining pain's presence. What we're not told in this narrative, what we're not told in the Joseph story, is when it dawned on Joseph that he was a lifesaver sent by God to save his brothers and his family. We're not told when it dawned on him, like, oh my gosh, I'm a lifesaver. That's why God sent me here. He obviously got there in chapter 45, but when, did he, got, when he got there, we don't know. If you, um, if you remember in Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, the narrator, after Joseph is in prison for like, like Potiphar's wife jumps, like tries to jump him, and he's like, no, get, get away, and you're getting closer, and then, uh, and then uh, Potiphar walks in, and he throws him in prison, and then the, the narrator sings over Joseph. He sings this. I've read the book. You've come out on top. He's trying to comfort Joseph. He's like, hey, Joseph, I read ahead. I read the book. You come on on top, man. It's going to be all good. I know you're in prison, but you're only going to be there for a couple years, and you're going to come out on top. Now, we don't have such a privilege to hear that. When we go through suffering, there's no someone singing over us, hey, God, two years right for now, and then everything's going to be awesome. You lost your job, but the next one's ten times better, and travel, and like a car, it's going to be awesome. You know, you just got dumped, but you're going to meet your spouse in two weeks. No, no one's singing that over us. We don't know. When we go through suffering, no one sings that song. What, how does it resolve? And it actually didn't even happen to Joseph, just only, only in the musical. Most of us live out our lives waiting uh, for God to bring our work and our talents to fruition. Most of us wait on God to make sense of our pain. I do. I do for myself. I do for you. Close friends. When I sit counseling people or taking prayer requests, when, I, when people share with me hurt, pain, suffering they're going through, I often whisper a prayer to God when I'm listening to you speak. And the prayer is something like this. God, help me make sense of their pain so I can encourage them. And most often, so far every single time, I never get a response. I wish I did. I wish you were sharing pain with me and all this stuff that you're going through. I was like, oh, okay, wait, wait, time out. I'm getting something. You lost your job because God wants you to take a Sabbath. And during your Sabbath, you're going to find yourself. And when you find yourself, you're going to find yourself at Dolores Park, and there you're going to meet your spouse. (laughs) Really? God just said it. Like, oh, I love my suffering. This is awesome. Like, I wish I could say that. If God gave me that prophecy when you're speaking to me, believe me, I would tell you. I would light up and go, oh, my gosh, stop right now. It's going to get awesome. I'm going to go Old Testament on you right now. This is going to be amazing. I wish I could do that. I can't. I don't ever get it. I pray for it all the time. Like, God, help me make sense of their pain. Nothing. And not something as trivial. I know it's not trivial to lose a job. I understand. That's difficult. But when, like, kids die, they suffer, sitting with families and people, and they share, and I'm like, I can't make sense of that. What do I say as a pastor? I'm supposed to have some sort of answer. And I have nothing. And I sit there and I go, can we just, I just can, I can, all I can do is pray. See, sometimes we think, if, we, if I only knew what God was doing, then I'd be okay. 
See, I know I'm suffering now, but if I knew, I knew what God was doing in my suffering, then I'd be fine. We look for explanations in our suffering to try to make the pain go away. If we only grasped God's will more clearly, then surely the pain would go away. And so we look for it. In the middle of our pain, we look for all these explanations. Well, maybe God's doing this. Well, maybe God's doing that. Well, maybe God's doing this. Or maybe this is going to happen. I lost my this, or I, they broke up with me, or I, I, I'm suffering this because all that, like, and what we don't realize is that explanations during suffering are a substitute for trust. Explanations during suffering are a substitute for trust. What we want when we're looking for explanations is we don't want to trust anymore. we like, I, I want to let go of God, and then I want to grab on to whatever you, you have for me next, God. We want to just like, we don't want to trust in God alone anymore. We want, to, we want to grab on to the thing that's happening at the end of it all. If I explained your suffering to you and what would be accomplished and what the outcome would be in perfect detail, you probably wouldn't need to trust anymore. It's subtle, but that trust would shift. Because what you're looking for in the middle of pain, you have in Jesus. You have in a relationship with Jesus. This is why the author of Hebrews says, although he was a son, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Your theological red light should be blinking right now. You're like, wait a second. You just told, it just says right there on the screen that Jesus learned something. How can he learn anything? He was perfect, according to Christian doctrine. And he, he suffered to learn obedience. How did he learn obedience? I thought he was perfect. How do you learn obedience if you're perfect? What this says here, what, what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is Christ's status as God's son did not exempt him from learning the learning process common to humanity. Jesus was completely human. He was real and authentic. And Hebrews author says that because he suffered as a human, he has now sympathy for us as our high priest. His suffering does not mean, and his learning obedience does not mean that he passed from disobedience to obedience, like you and I do. He does not mean that he developed from imperfection to perfection. The idea conveys, conveyed here is that his human experience was made completely human and that he suffered. He experienced what obedience was through suffering, like Joseph did when he said no to Potiphar's wife. That should tell you something about being human, that suffering is a very part of the human existence. And this should also tell you something about Jesus, that Jesus didn't obey in a vacuum. He didn't obey in a perfect world. He obeyed in the context of this fallen world and dealing with fallen humanity. So when you and I experience real difficult suffering, what we need and what we're looking for can be found in Jesus, our suffering servant. We can turn to him in trials and overcome them because Christ has overcome the world. This is also seen in Joseph's life with his repetition of God, 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 always turning everything back to God. Everything that Joseph needed was found in God. See, I can't explain to you the pain's presence because if I did, 
it might cease to work what it's doing on you. If I explained away pain in your life in this sermon, it might just stop the work it's doing in your own life. The best way I can um, illustrate this is uh, through a, a story I, I read years ago. It's a little elementary, but I think it gets across this point. It's about a boy who was looking at a caterpillar in a mason jar, and one day that caterpillar climbed up on his little branch and then turned into a little cocoon, and he was like, what, what's going on? And so he went to his mom, Mommy, what's happening? This like caterpillar is my pet caterpillar in my mason jar, and it's like dead. It's like stuff. And she said, no, he's going through a transformation. He's going to turn into a beautiful butterfly. What? Yeah, just let him sit there for, for a while, and you'll see. And he kind of watched it, and one day it came. As he watched this little caterpillar try to pull out of its cocoon and struggling, and then as he was struggling, he was, he was realizing this caterpillar wasn't really pulling it off. The caterpillar was struggling really hard to get out. He was trying to break free. It looked like he was desperate, like he was making no progress. So this boy, filled with compassion, runs and grabs the scissors and cuts open the cocoon. And out plops this swollen body and shriveled wings. And he's waiting for these wings to flap and fly, but they never do. And he asked his mom what happened. And what she said to him was this. She explained that the butterfly was supposed to struggle. The butterfly struggled to push its way through this tiny opening in the cocoon, gets that messy fluid from his body out to his wings. And without the struggle, the butterfly would never have the strength and the ability to fly. I know that illustration's a bit elementary. It might even be a bit corny, but I think it gets across the point. If you try to cut away the suffering, if you try to cut away the pain, you're never gonna develop. Jesus, who is perfect, learned through suffering. There's something, if you're the most perfect person in the world, if you make the Bible and there's no recorded sin, like Joseph, there's something that is still to be learned through suffering. That God trains us in suffering. You and I will go through pain and training. And through that, it makes us stronger, more dependent upon God, makes us people with a greater hope. I was telling some people last night at a wedding I did last night about this very thing. They walked up to me and said, you know, if I was in banking, and I'm, it sounded really big. I'm like, well, I don't know about banking. I was like a teller. You say I was in banking, in banking. It sounds like I work for a huge firm or something. But like, whoa, so what happened? Like, so how was it? I'm like, well, I was a teller and I got fired, but I don't really want to talk about it. You can listen to one of the teachings, I bring it up, and I, I'm a little bitter about it still, so whatever. I don't want to talk about it. Like, what happened then? I worked at Starbucks and they're like, well, that shouldn't have been that long ago. That, like, no, that wasn't that long ago at all. It was not that long ago at all. Thank you for bringing that up, too. And then they're like, and so they know me now as like pastor of this church, pastoring in this church and all that stuff. They're like, seriously, you just got fired from an entry-level job like not that long ago and worked at Starbucks? And I'm like, yeah, completely. He goes, well, how did that, what did that do to you? I mean, what, what did that do? I'm like, it was probably the best thing that's ever happened to me. See, I was on my way to planning a church and when I got fired from an entry-level job and then worked at Starbucks, through that, I realized I can't do anything. I can't. I can't pull it up. I can't go to the city of San Francisco and start a church. There's no way. So we moved here. My mantra was, it's not in me. I can't do this. There's no way I can do this. And you get on our website and you read our bios and you're like, wait, are you kidding me? These people are leading, like this is happening? 
but I think it's what makes, I think it's probably one of the most attractive things about this church. Is that it's not like these people. It's God. It's what God's doing. And that lesson was learned through suffering. I could sit here and say, this is the purpose of your pain. Your purpose of going through the pain that you're going through, whether it be physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, the reason why you're going through the pain that you're going through is that you're going to comfort someone else. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Guys, you might be going through suffering because God is going to have you comfort someone. In a year from now, or two years, or five years, you're going to go through something, and someone's going to go through something, and they're going to tell you about it. You're like, I went through that. You know what you need? A hug. That's what you need because nothing else is going to do. You know what you need? You need my, just my presence. You need my prayers. Like, I, I can comfort you because I was there and God comforted me and I want to comfort you with the comfort of God. That might be the reason why you're suffering right now. Or the purpose of your pain might be because of your discipline. Because God needs to discipline you like a wayward child. Because you know what to do and you can continue not, do, not to do it. You won't do it. And God is bringing suffering in your life to discipline you. He's treating you like a legitimate son or daughter. You're really his son or daughter. And because he is, he's committed to you. And because he's committed to you, he'll bring you through discipline. Hebrews chapter 12 says, God disciplines us for our good. That we may share in his holiness. It's not about your comfort. It's about your holiness. That's a dangerous statement, by the way. For the, moment we all, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This might be what God's doing to you, disciplining you as a legitimate son, that he can train you in righteousness and holiness. Because it's not about your comfort. God can give a rip about your comfort as it compares to your holiness. Does God comfort us? Absolutely. But as it compares to our holiness, God is way more concerned with our holiness. And so discipline us. The purpose of your pain might be to bring about endurance in your life. To build your lungs of faith so that you can go great distances for God. Romans 5 says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint. Maybe you need hope in your life. And the way that God brings you hope is through suffering. Wow, that, isn't that a weird concept? Or maybe the pain is there to wake you up because you have placed your hope in false gods, in false hopes, in false idols. And God is waking you up, as C.S. Lewis has famously said, God whispers in our pleasures, speaks to, uh, in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. This is what God does. He wakes us up in our pain pastor on the east coast named Tulian Chavidian just wrote a book it's not out yet I got an advanced copy I don't know if I'm allowed to quote it but I'm going to um, it's called glorious ruin it's on suffering and it says this it's, I think it sums this up really well God wants us to free uh, wants to free us from ourselves 
And there's nothing like suffering to show us that we need something bigger than our abilities and our strength and our explanations. There's nothing like suffering to remind us how not in control we actually are, how little power we ultimately have, and how much we ultimately need God. In other words, suffering reveals to us the things that ultimately matter, which also happens to be the warp and woof of Christianity, who we are and who God is. Suffering has a wonderful way of bringing your life into perfect clarity, of burning the way of the dross, of tearing all the stuff that doesn't matter away. Suffering has a wonderful way of doing that. Struggle has a beautiful way of doing that, and God uses that in our lives. See, there are countless purposes and reasons for our pain, but here's the reality. Get this. You may not know which one it is. It may be one of them. It may be all of them. You won't know until the resolution. You won't know until you get a resolution. So those, all that, that might be great, all that, and I want you to keep all of that in mind, but you can't go, I'm going this because you don't know yet. You don't know. And so in that mystery, you cling to the hope of Jesus. And you cling to the hope of what he's doing, whether it is discipline, whether it is endurance, whatever he's doing in your life, cling to him more than all the other stuff. But when will we see the resolve? Last point, resolving pain's hurt. I think the point of this entire narrative can be summed up like this. Joseph's story can be summed up like this. The worst things that can happen to you, the greatest attacks upon your life can only fulfill God's dream for you. The worst things that can happen in your life can only fulfill the dreams that God has for you. God gave Joseph a dream. Joseph's brothers, by trying to kill the dream, actually fulfilled the dream. That's what God does. Anything that comes in your life that's horrific pain, God resolves it to bring about his plan for your life. We have this Christian hope that God will do it in this life and he will reconcile all things in the next. This is the Christian hope of the resurrection and the redemption of everything that has happened in this world. I think C.S. Lewis put it wonderfully in The Great Divorce when he talks about heaven this way. He says about heaven, that is what mortals, this is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, this is what we say about some temporal, us and mortals. I like how he calls us mortals, it's just funny. They say of some temporal suffering, this is what we say, no future bliss can make up for it. There's no future bliss that can make up for the temporal suffering I'm going through. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn every event, even that of agony, into glory. Heaven will begin to work its way backwards and take every single agony and turn that into glory. That's the hope that the Christian has. There's a woman who has a wonderful ministry by the name of Joni Erickson Tata. When she was a teenager, she dove into Chesapeake Bay and she kind of misguided, um, misjudged the, the, the shallowness of the water and then broke her neck and became a quadriplegic from the neck down. And as she was going through rehabilitation at the very beginning, she thought, I, I could beat this, I could walk again. And then when they realized that she couldn't, she went into severe depression, suicidal thoughts, doubts about God, anger. 
And what turned her around, because she grew up a, a follower of Jesus, she grew up a Christian. And what turned her around from anger against God and suicidal thoughts, what turned her around was, she said, when I looked to Jesus on the cross. When he was paralyzed there and could not move. Like I cannot move. And he stood there willingly paralyzed for me. She said, that gives me present hope. But she says, you know what gives me future hope? The resurrection. Not just Jesus like paralyzed and then, and then rehabilitating, but Jesus dead and then getting a brand new body. And I get a brand new body. That's my future hope. And that's her hope. And she was at a conference, Christian conference, and the speaker at the end of the conference, at the close of his message, asked the audience to kneel for prayer. And she watched as the whole audience began to kneel. But of course, she couldn't kneel. She sat in her wheelchair weeping. And the tears, she said, could not stop. But then she remembered the resurrection. And she wrote, sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven, I will be free to, I'll be free to jump up, dance, kick, and do aerobics. And although I'm sure Jesus will be delighted to watch me rise on tiptoe, there's something I plan to do that may please him more. If possible, somewhere, sometime before the party gets going, sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is drop on grateful, glorified knees. I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. Christians have a wonderful hope in God. It's not a pipe dream. It's real right now. God brings about his perfect plan in our suffering. He uses, he's, he's used Joni Erickson Tata's life amazingly for his glory. He uses our pain and our suffering for his good. And one day, we'll stand before him and he'll resolve all the pain, and then heaven will work its way backward and turn all our agony to glory. And what communion celebrates is that day. Communion has a way of looking back going, Jesus hung on that cross for me. But Jesus also said in the Last Supper, I won't have this meal again with you until that day when you're with me in glory. And so communion has a way of pointing forward going, until that day, Jesus, until that day. Let's respond to God by taking communion. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. I thank you for this short series on pain. I pray that we lock this so deep in our hearts and our mind and our psyche that it would change us, God. I pray again, once again, against any weird thought that because we taught on suffering, we now have to suffer. Maybe not. Maybe, God, you're gonna just going to keep blessing people Maybe. But those that are going through suffering now and those that will go through suffering, I pray that we would remember your goodness, your sovereignty. That we can call sin, sin, and pain, pain, and realize that hurts. But I trust in the Lord. God, I pray that, I pray that we would place our trust in you as a church. Draw us to deeper dependency, Jesus. I pray in your name.
Amen.